Somewhere men are laughing and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has Welcome back, everybody. It's Mudville. What day is it? Tuesday. The 21st of November. Beautiful. I'm one of your hosts, Nolan Rabine. Earth. America. America. I skipped the country. (laughs) I went right to planet. I'm a global citizen. I'm Brody. (laughs) Baseball and movies. Lots happening. Dude, yes. We got a very exciting episode for the people today. We're going to be talking about Spike Lee's classic 25th hour. Let me tell you something. That is a 2002 movie. (laughs) That is the most 2002 a movie can possibly get. That was going to be part of my thesis going on later in the show. That is Before we get (laughs) to all that, we also are going to talk about some free agency. Uh, We're going to talk about who signed where. We're going to talk about who got traded. But even before we do any of that, I did just want to share a little update that I had just on the ongoing uh, degradation of information in the social media era. Sure. The Mudballs might remember last time it was a Dwayne Johnson AI fan page breaking the news that The Rock and his wife had given birth to Daniel Craig. Yes. This time, it was a clearly photoshopped press release announcing that Riley Gaines won Woman of the Year. And if you don't know who Riley Gaines is, I assume you're not keeping up with uh, regional high school girls swimming? Uh, No. Riley Gaines is someone who came in sixth place in a big swim meet in like Tennessee or some state down there. Sixth? Yes. Woman of the year for six Exactly. Okay. And through a big fit because one of the girls who tied for fourth or whatever is transgender. And so okay. this girl became... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There Didn't you she go. like sue the state or something? Probably. I don't give a shit. It was like something weird and stupid. If Yeah. If you don't know who she is, that means you're a normal person who doesn't yeah. read like right wing blogs or whatever the fuck. That's fair. I'm proud that it took that much, uh, <laughs> that much like smacking around the old brain to get that bit out that I could remember it. <laughs> yeah. Riley Gaines became a uh, right wing grifter propping up this lie that her career was ruined when like she got sixth place instead of fifth. And obviously this like irrelevant loser didn't win the woman of the year or, or anything like it, like any award that could possibly resemble that. But this post had over 200,000 reactions regardless. So to me, it just felt like a window into what the conservative internet is like. Yeah, man. You know, just sort of... uh, The world is weird. Take a gaze over the fence and see what's happening over on the other side. Right. 
It's all bullshit. Yeah. It's all made up. Don't don't peek over that fence too often. No. I didn't want it. to. They put it on my feed again. This is what I'm talking about with the Facebook. The nerds are up to the bullshit. Their, their algorithm is cooked. By the Here's way. Here's the real thing, though. The real uh, problem with all of this. Why are you spending so much time on Facebook? Dude. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I might just have to delete my account. I don't like post on it. I, I just kind of browse. Uh, I can't delete my account only because it's like, I don't know. I need to like know where my family is. Unfortunately, you know, Facebook is like 20% people you actually would like to hear from and right. like seeing like updates on people's lives and then just 80% absolute nonsense. And in this case, obvious lies, just not even made up to look real, slapped on the pages of millions of boomers to provide confirmation that this depraved ideology that they've chosen is somehow like morally just. And they're both socially and technologically inept to the point where they all fall for it. The headline on this, by the way, was like, Megan Rapinoe is in shambles after Riley Gaines wins Woman of the Year. Oh, Women of the Year, by the way, because they spelled it wrong and right, you used the plural. Um, and all the comments, there were like a, a thousand comments. I just went through very quickly and it said like, I'm, I'm very glad it went to Riley or good for her. Just some like NPC. Yeah, you just know it's like Gordon from like Wisconsin. He's like in his fucking moment. Yeah, and I'm not pointing out anything new here by saying old people. People are reading fake news on the internet, but just like to get a, a glimpse into the mechanics of that and seeing how obviously phony some of yeah. the stuff that they're falling for is like, that's a really good point. That is the surface. That's like stop number one on the fake news train. Mm -hmm. And these guys are still getting got by it. <laughs> yeah. Like, really makes me wonder how that generation came to take over the world. There really wasn't anybody else to do it. The, they, it was all war, handed to them. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways. It's Mudville. <laughs> Hi. Hello. We got a little baseball action now. It's been a couple weeks ever since the Texas Rangers won the World Series. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Free agency started. Yoshinobi Yamamoto has been posted. A few guys have started to sign. We got a couple trades. We got some non-tenders. And let's talk about all of it. The biggest move so far probably came yesterday, the announcement that Phillies pitcher Aaron Nola re-signed on a seven-year, $172 million deal. This was about the exact figure that a bunch of people predicted, so it wasn't too surprising, um, although a lot of people, myself included, did think he was going to end up on a different team. I'm kind of happy that he didn't actually, because with Nola, like I don't think that 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 the next seven years of, of his career are going to be worth 172 mil, I or agree. probably even an, anything close to it. But Nola has been so durable over the course of his six or seven years playing for that team. Um, like he's barely yeah, ever nice been to hurt. See the reward. He's been very, through, very yeah. good. He's been he's thrown like 160, 170 innings a year, I believe. His average is actually 206. Believe it or not, his 162 wow. is 162 game oh. average. Okay, but, yeah. He's he's thrown over 200 innings three times since uh, 2018. Definition of a and the workhorse. Others, this year was 193. Yeah, and two years ago was 180. So it's yeah, he's he's there. He's been one of the aces in baseball over the past five years, uh, and I was kind of afraid one that of the you know few pitchers to not lose a whole season. Yeah, so basically, <laughs> yeah, it's true. There's not many who can say that. So I was kind of afraid that if he ended up on a new team, you know, he would struggle 
early because Aaron Nola is the the kind of pitcher where you know he's not stuff dominant and he he never has been you know he paints corners he throws nasty curveballs and sinkers and you know he he knows how to pitch like he's a uh, he's a real pitcher's pitcher I was just gonna say yeah he doesn't walk anybody really so but like that's the kind of guy where like if something's not working it can all fall apart very quickly and we did see that a lot like towards the middle of 2023 before he really turned it back up again at the end of the season and then pitched well in the the playoffs which is the reason that he got paid as as much as he did he's been better than i thought recently too yeah he's very good he's yeah he's at he's got five straight years of 200 strikeouts let let me read it Five full seasons, five straight full seasons of 200 strikeouts, not counting 2020 when he wow. had 96. Yeah, um, count 96 and 12 starts, by the way. Ridiculous. Good stuff. Yeah, um, I think the Phillies are the the best match to keep him. Um, you know, they went to a World Series with him. They almost reached another one this year. Should have, certainly. Uh, he's found a lot of success in that park on that team. You know, he's he's done well in the playoffs. He's done well against the Braves, specifically in the playoffs. It feels like a case of, like, not only paying him for what you're going to get, but paying him for what you've already gotten. If Nola does flame out, like, towards the end of that contract, I think that the fan reaction to him, you know, would be much uh, healthier or there'd be a lot less animosity from philadelphia fans right. were that to happen you know then then there would be if he signed with like the red Sox or something and then sucked after three years which we'd probably laugh at in that case just because it would be the red Sox. this just seems like the best case involved for all parties yeah i'm with you um he his numbers are honestly i mean i obviously Knew he was great. The Yankees were linked for a second, according to a, a, a beat writer, whatever you want to believe that or not. Um, Supposedly. Yeah, but he really has been, uh, he's been, he's been pretty up there in terms of uh, definitely reliability and um, just flat out ability. His numbers are fantastic over the last few years. So good for Philly that they locked him up. He's been their guy. So, uh, you know, they still need a lot more, though, <laughs> if, oh, yeah. honestly. Uh, pitching wise, they couldn't really afford to lose him. I think that's the angle I'm going to take on it. <laughs> it's uh, I don't know what they would have done had he left um, for pitching, other than try to I guess go get some of the other free agent guys, which we can talk about. There's actually significantly pretty good options this season. Certainly, um, although there's really only about four, maybe four to five. So I mean, you can expect to maybe get one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so. If you're a big market team, I should say. So, I mean, the Phillies, you'd be left with Zach Wheeler, Taiwan Walker, Ranger Suarez. Painter eventually, but Painter he had Tommy John, so he's gone for a while. Um, yeah, not a lot of options, really, for them. So, uh, yeah, they kind of had to. So, <laughs> And I'm, yeah. I'm also hearing that this NOLA re-signing, it does not take them out of the running for Yamamoto or Snell or, who, or any other of those like big-name pitchers that they're going to continue to pursue. So that's pretty exciting. You know, if you're a Philly fan, you can be happy or take some solace in the fact that they are going even more all-in than they have been. And that's a team that's already found quite a bit of success over the past few years, even though they have not yet gotten to hoist that trophy. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason that they shouldn't be going all in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a little old. old. I will just say, like, the Phillies in general, they, like, Nola's 30. Um, Now's they, the window. Their roster is a little bit aged, 
um, mm-hmm. for the most part. So it's it's really they got to attack if they're going to do it. So, yeah, they yeah. got to do it now. Keep an eye on that. Uh, moving forward, Lance Lynn signed with the St. Louis Cardinals, and then yes. today it was announced Kyle Gibson did too. We'll start with Lynn, I because you know that St. Louis has got is this, that news. St. <laughs> Louis is like putting together a nice mid sandwich over there. Um, yeah. Lance Lynn led the league in home runs last year. He's like 37, 38 years old now. Uh, they, he did find a little bit of success last year immediately after the Dodgers traded for him when he just started hammering fastballs in there. But people did catch up to that, too. He came back down to earth and started pitching badly again like he had in Chicago. And then, of course, he got tagged by Arizona in the first round of the playoffs, just like the Dodgers' other two starters did. I remain unconvinced that he has much left, but he signed a one-year deal, I believe, for $10 million with the Cardinals. And, you know, for, for that team, like, that just kind of seems like a sure move to me because they need any warm body to throw innings right so, now. Like, they just yeah. have nobody in that rotation. If I may. You um, may. Kyle Gibson gave up the most hits in Major League Baseball last season with 198. Okay? 198 hits given up in 192 innings. All right? Now, you might be thinking, who really cares about the total number of hits given up? That's significant. I care. Why not? Um, Yeah, sure. Why not? Right? Lance Lynn gave up 44 home runs last season, which was the most home runs given up by a pitcher Mm -hmm. all year last year. So they just added the guys who gave up combined the most hits and home runs allowed in baseball. Uh, also, Lance Lynn, 189 hits given up last year. Gotta imagine that's near the top if 198 was number one. <laughs> um, so, Oof. not great. Also, uh, Kyle Gibson this year gave up 23 homers. So, not as bad. But um, still, this is a uh, bold strategy. Not, not really the, uh, I don't even know if you want to call this a Band-Aid. This is like, you know. I think this is salt on the wound. <laughs> this um, is a, a deepening man. of the cut. This is this is a lick. <laughs> this is like, ah, shit, I cut myself. Better lick it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Try to clean it up. <laughs> this is not helping you, really. This is a second cut. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Lance Lynn had a rough year. I mean, obviously, he's been around forever. The dude's a horse, um, mm-hmm. but he is no longer the... Uh, Oh yeah, the days of old Lance Lynn. Even the days of the, like the White Sox Lance Lynn from like twenty twenty one when he's an all star somehow. Like, all respect that's, that's gone to Lance Lynn. You know, no no disrespect to him. No, Just not I'm all. not convinced that twenty twenty four Lance Lynn in a St. Louis Cardinals jersey will have under a six ERA. His second stint, by the way, is a St. Louis Cardinal. That's true. Very easy to forget. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so Lance Lynn goes back. Kyle Gibson. Now, if you want to touch on him at all, um, I already mentioned the hits thing. Not ideal. Uh, coming off of a season with a four one three FIP and a four seven ERA, not great. Yeah, I don't want to touch on Kyle Gibson. Um, not great. American League offenses have done that enough. It's so. <laughs> very funny. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's just the Cardinals needed pitching. Um. So it's just surprising that this is where they started. Feel like there are better options that they could have. Yeah, I mean, thrown millions of dollars at instead. But all right, it kind of only makes sense if they also go out and get Snell. But yeah, I don't 
think that they're going to do that. I mean, if I'm Blake Snell, there are like 22 other teams I'd want to sign with before I sign with St. Louis. But who knows? Maybe they'll go out and throw him like more money than, I, than anybody else. I don't, but know I don't why, really know why they would do that at this moment. I see Sonny Gray going there for some reason. Like That just feels... I could like see it, it happen. He yeah. seems like a small market, like baseball calmness type guy. So, like, I think it, that, that could him. make sense. Yeah. Um, Maybe all right. San Francisco. I don't know. Yeah. San Francisco is a good guess, too. Um, but, yeah, if you moving forward move from there, on, uh, the Atlanta Braves have been very active uh, in the first few days here. Yes. Um, they signed Reynaldo Lopez, uh, I think, three years, $30 million. I know it was a 10-year average. They traded Kyle Wright with that shoulder injury to Kansas City for Jackson Coar. Really shows how out on him they are. You know, just a year removed from a 20-win season. And then they send this guy to baseball hell, a Kansas City (laughs) Royals rotation. Yeah. Um, it's not as hellish as the Rockies rotation. I suppose that's true. <laughs> yeah, not great though. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe they'll they'll get something out of Coar. Uh, Lopez has been pretty decent. You know, his stuff is good, but he's gotten touched up a lot. Maybe the Braves will finally fix him. And then they made a big trade. They sent all was, of their leftovers basically to the White Sox for Aaron Bummer. Right. Uh, they traded Mike Soroka, another guy who was like a promising starter in 2019. He missed like over two full seasons in a row. Like that guy just could not stay healthy. You know, he clearly just didn't have a spot in the Braves rotation moving forward. He'll certainly get a bunch of starts in Chicago. If they can get even like 80, 90 innings out of him next year, I think they'll have to consider that a big win because he hasn't been pitching at all. Uh, they sent Jared Schuster as well, another guy who made a bunch of starts this year. But they weren't very good ones. And when you're Atlanta Brave, you know, they're thinking of guys that are going to compete in the postseason because that has been their issue in the, over the past couple of years. And Jared Schuster is not one of those guys. Uh, they sent Nicky Lopez, the infielder, uh, Riley Goins, I don't know who that is, and Braden Schumach. So that's the trade for Aaron Bummer, the left-handed reliever. He throws gas. I believe he was injured for quite a bit of last year. We'll see if he can be dominant out of the Braves' pen. I don't really have much to say about Aaron Bummer, but I will say I'm very happy for Reynaldo Lopez um, because this is really a great uh, case study on the phrase, take your lumps. Uh, he was kind of <laughs> wasting away in the White Sox bullpen for a few years. Then this year, he was on the White Sox, then traded to L.A., and then, as we all know, released by the Angels and became one of those guardian angels that, right. the, uh, that Cleveland picked up at the end of the year, basically just to eat innings. He was the only one of those guys who actually pitched well down the stretch for Cleveland. He had a zero ERA in, of after 12 appearances. Um, so... Uh, yeah, now he gets some stability and gets to go be a brave, <laughs> go hold it down. So uh, good for him. Yeah, good for him. That's also the first time he has not been teammates with uh, Lucas Giolito in his career. That's really funny. <laughs> Which is kind of wild. <laughs> is, and he was on three teams this Four, season. Four. So. Well, well, yeah, this year. Yeah. He went from uh, the Nationals Chicago. with him to Chicago, yeah. and then they both went to the Angels, oh and God, then they got the dropped, Nationals and they both in got caught. Yeah, That's really so wild. True. Good point, man. Back when they were both... When, when, 
Lopez was still a top starting pitching prospect. That's like one of those, uh, like a movie where like the the main characters go through so much that at the end they just like they don't even do the goodbye. They're just like, okay, we're done with each other, and yeah. just like part ways because this they've just went through hell. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> this <laughs> is one of those. Like, yeah, man. See, so, yeah. it's like we're good. Like it's just we, we're gonna go live our lives. <laughs> oh man, we could write a like buddy comedy about. Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez going from team to team. Oh, yeah. Like, especially dealing with, like, Artie Moreno and those fools. Moving on. Uh, Brandon Woodruff was non-tendered by the Milwaukee Brewers. non What the hell? Dude. Yeah, that was seemingly weird, but then it made sense when you look at it. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but now some lucky team is going to get a free qualifying offer next season. <laughs> He's due to miss most or all of this year with shoulder surgery. I mean, it's like a similar injury to the one Kyle Wright has. Um, so it, And like Woodruff also, he's dealing with that like chronic condition that he has that he's been dealing with for the past couple of years. Is it his back? Or something like that. I don't. Maybe his neck. I don't remember. Yeah, but, yeah, there's but like his his health. I mean, obviously, it's you know not even up for debate. It's just bad. But you know, it, it it's also at risk of getting worse moving forward. The Brewers seem like they're going to trade most of their talent this off season anyway. So I guess it does make sense that they chose not to pay him this upcoming year. Yeah, it just does suck. Honestly, to see that happen to a guy who's been so good for them. It's the opposite of Aaron Nola. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) sure. It's it's shitty, you know, to to look at it from, like, a personal standpoint. You know, clearly, Corbin Burns has had his issues with that that organization in the past. David Stearns just left. Greg Council just left. They're going to, yeah. Wait, like, low-key, the Brewers are a mess right now. No, they are. Their their field had to get um they got like sanctioned by the state that they had to make like upgrades to it cuz it was falling apart or something. Jesus. They were out like a billion and a half for that. Then their GM leaves, then their manager leaves, and now they non-tender their all-star starting pitcher, anchor of the rotation guy. They're definitely Corbin trading Burns Corbin Burns is gone like after this. Uh their big anchor contract had a bounce back year but probably isn't that was that might have been it for Christian Yelich. I mean yeah, I mean, chance he's going to be better. Like the whole organization is like, what are they going to do? There won't be a window for them certainly anymore. No, that uh, was they, it. They should trade Freddie Peralta probably. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they that was I, it. I think it's going to be a couple tough years moving forward for them. Yeah, they got some some young talent with they like Terang and Free, like uh, Jackson Churio. That's going to be huge. That's true. But that's you true. Know, you know what? Yeah. They're they're younger than you think. Ah, Contreras is good. Like there's there's some guys. Think of the Brewers and oh, think Joey of what they've Wiener. done. Yeah. Yeah. But like think of the Brewers and think of what they've done over the past like five years. They just they they get to the playoffs and they just fall out immediately. Yeah, that's and what we were saying in the uh the preview episode. They're yeah. Just, that's what they do. That's what they've been doing. Yeah. This was their last chance to prove everybody wrong and they failed. And so. that will be their ceiling at best, you yeah. know. Well, see that is what ceiling means. That will be their ceiling moving <laughs> forward. Yes. Um, ATM machine. Yeah, it seems like <laughs> they. Or it seems like they're done in, in Milwaukee for a little while. Yeah, that but. sucks too. Because I actually, when the Brewers are good, it's pretty fun. Like I like their whole thing. Like it's it's very uh, visually appealing when they're good. I like their team and their colors and their logos and stuff. Um, and the stadium's pretty from the outside point of view. I've never been there, so I never had tile fall on my head or whatever the hell is going on there. But um, yeah, kind of a shame. 
Sucks for Brandon Woodruff, man. Does suck for Brandon Woodruff. But feel bad for the guy. Good for Craig Council. Paid. Good for Corbin Burns, I guess. Go win somewhere else. Yeah. David Stern's already getting rid of like half the Mets roster. Someone maybe for him. takes a shot on Rowdy Telez. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's though those were the big everything's relative moves so far uh, across baseball. Um you want to talk about the ones that are yet to happen? Yeah, you know, I did. Yeah, I did have one idea because you know, did did you see Scherzer was trying to lure Otani to Texas? Said, was, money is not everything. But winning is like the most important thing, and I kind of had the idea that I think it, it would it would make a lot of sense if Otani wanted to sign like a one year, maybe forty four million dollar deal or something around right. those lines with Texas this year while he recovers from his elbow surgery. Like the reigning champions would add the best player of all time. Uh, he obviously won't Scary. pitch, but that rotation is super deep, as we just saw in October. I mean, the, they're going to lose Jordan Montgomery most likely. Like he's going to sign elsewhere, I think. But is there word on that, or are you just guessing? Because I could see him going back to Texas. I'd be surprised if they signed him again. Um, they have but the hey, money. maybe like, they could. He was but, good for them in the playoffs. There's no know, reason to get rid of him. Like if you're Texas, why would you even let him leave? Like who? What? What? Why not? Yeah, I mean, I'm coming back. That's it. It would just have to be like you know what they see themselves doing moving forward with the amount of like young talent they have coming up now. Like if they think that their rotation's deep enough, or if they can find a replacement. Monty's pretty valuable. I'm not the GM of Texas. But, yeah. Monty, I would try to re-sign him if they could, but I'm just sort of at this moment predicting that he won't re-sign there. But, you know, regardless, the Texas rotation is, is going to be pretty deep. The lineup is as nasty as it gets. We just, we just saw them add um, Evan Carter in the last month of the season and Wyatt Langford should debut early in 2024. Josh Young had a huge rookie season. Adding Shohei Otani to that would just be laughable. It would. I agree with you. Um, I I don't think I see him in Texas. Uh, maybe that's just my own bias against uh, the Rangers because I I don't like their vibe. But um, I I just feel more strongly that Shohei does end up somewhere on a one year deal. I just don't see it being Texas. Um, I, I feel like I could see him doing a year in L.A. or, well, the other L.A. Team. Yeah. Uh, I could also see him doing one year in, like, Seattle, like, even maybe, like, a St. Louis, like, a Chicago. Like, play, there are a lot of teams that have a lot of money right now. Um, I spend. think Texas would be the ideal team for that one year. Like, they could, they're going to try their ass off to be the first team to repeat since the uh, Yankees in the end of the 90s. Yeah. Like... I, I was going to say, like, it, I think I did towards, like, the start of the postseason. Like, they were going to be my 2024 World Series pick. And right. then they won before I was ready for them. That um, did feel a little dynastic. Yeah. Like, like they showed up early. Exactly. Because this is, that roster's really freaking good. And they have so really much good. talent. Really good. On the, the verge of being there. Like, I don't yeah. know if they can figure out Jack Leiter even. Who knows? <laughs> but... Who knows? God, if they, I think they really should be going all out to sign him on that one-year deal, and it would make a lot of sense for Otani too, because yeah, cover, yeah. Hit. Although to be fair, as a hitter, like he, I mean, he's a great hitter. Obviously, like he's everyone knows he's a great hitter, great pitcher, and that combined makes him the greatest ever. However, uh, when you consider him as just a hitter, I like you know it's 
is he worth forty five million dollars for one year to DH? Like truly, that's like a question. If, I mean, it's like that's a lot of money mm-hmm. for a DH when it's only one year. Like, I mean, if he's not going to pitch now, there was word that he's going to um, consider only playing the outfield after this, and like you know, um, like he'll give up the pitching or something. Which I, I don't, I don't, see I don't that imagine happening. that. Ha- that's no. his whole thing. So I, I don't think maybe he becomes a reliever, but that also the logistics of that are fuzzy. But. Um, I don't I think know. It, this is this is going to be a weird decision. I, like I don't think anybody is really going to be able to nail down his reasoning because it's really like everybody's just guessing. Nobody yeah. knows if he wants to be on the East Coast, or the West Coast. Nobody knows if he wants to be one year, or ten years, or fifteen years. Nobody it's knows all if he speculation. wants, you know, the high AAV or like you know whatever. It's mm-hmm. no one like nobody even knows if he wants to fucking pitch again. It's like <laughs> you know this is all guesswork. But um, <laughs> so anyway, here's my guess. Uh, <laughs> it's. <laughs> I don't know. I, I do see Shohei staying on the West Coast somewhere, whether it be maybe Seattle or L.A. And if he doesn't, I think he ends up somewhere like maybe a Chicago for a year. But um, I could see that. Well, we'll see. I mean, Otani is going to receive the biggest free agent contract in Major League Baseball history very soon. I wouldn't blame him at, at all if he wanted to delay that a year in, until he's at full strength and then whichever team signs him knows who they're getting like right away in that case and then hopefully right. for the next 10 years i mean any team signing him has to like realistically say you're probably getting 3 years max of pitching and then you're getting the rest of DH. of hitting but that yeah. is the most enticing free agent contract of all time right there of course if, you, it is. if you get any more pitching out of that even if he becomes like a closer or something like that's still insanely valuable yep if there's any sense at all that this arm injury is going to prevent him from signing the first $600 million contract this offseason. I think it's pretty likely that he might take a short-term deal. And if there's mutual agreement on the terms, I don't see a more advantageous pairing than the Rangers. Like they want to be the first team to repeat in 25 years, almost like this is how you do it. So Shohei is currently 29. So, oh, he has the same birthday as my dad. That's Whoa. fun. Good for him. Um, so Shohei is 29. Good for Shohei or good for your dad? Both. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Shohei is 29 years old. He will be 30 by the time opening day rolls around. If he signs a one-year deal, I, there is no way he's signing a $600 million contract if it's after this season. I don't think it's possible. I, I don't think anybody will give him the years that would be necessary to get to that number i like if you are an insane organization willing to give shohei 12 years at age 31 look i i love what he does i love what he brings to baseball i love the energy and the excitement and everything about it but the dude is going to break and he already kind of is xander bogarts basically got that contract at that age but but xander bogarts doesn't also pitch exactly do no but he doesn't do the thing that breaks more athletes than anything else in any other sport, mm-hmm. except for maybe just generally playing football. Like sure. this is, I mean, it's devastating on the body. Like I just don't, and he does both. Well, I just don't Tommy impact. Johns until you lose your, your power at the plate. I'm, like I seriously. I, I mean, there's a lot of questions that you need to start asking. And like, you know, this is a very much larger scope conversation with Otani. I just, I think if you're him, you should probably wait to get your full strength contract next season, but it's not going to be six hundred million. I, I, I think there is a, a tipping point where his value just cannot become more than 
like like it, his age is going to create an issue for him and his injuries now especially are already lending to that you know that total decreasing like it's it's not going to be well this uh, upcoming season like that's why that that's going to be super important it's like we're going to get to see like exactly how much the pitching uh, injury impacts him at the plate like if his strikeout rate like skyrockets after it you know went down considerably last year and he's striking out like 32 percent of the time or whatever and then that's that's going to be alarming for a lot of teams like they're going to say you know is his offense dependent on the health and if so then the pitching becomes a much bigger problem as does the contract as a whole. You know, those are going to be semantics when it comes to acquiring Shohei Otani on your team long-term, at least for, for some team out there. Um, and You'll be happy you get him when you get him. It's just that the back end of that is it might end up being really rough because if you're paying him $50, $60 million a year for a guy who no longer can pitch and is so injured that his hitting has declined too. I mean, that's like, that's hard to swallow. Yeah. I do think that, um, he ends up as a LA Dodger long-term, but I could see this year, maybe just one year being on, on Texas, but I do agree with you that I don't see him there long-term. Yeah. All right. Move on. Yeah. Why not? Let's, uh, let's move on. We will be right back on Mudville. You know, it's a good thing I found this. It's gonna make your sofa so much more comfortable to sit on. Shit. Mr. Brogan, I do believe you're fucked. Royally. Shit. Some have called me the modern Travolta. Have they? We're back. It's Mudville. That was baseball. And this is movies. Baseball and movies. That's the deal. And this week, we got a very special movie. We got one from 2002, directed by Mr. Spike Lee. This is a Spike Lee joint. It stars Ed Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Barry Pepper, Rosario Dawson, Anna Paquin, and Brian Cox. And it's called 25th Hour. And Brody, had you seen this movie, or did you even know anything about it going in? No, uh, I had not seen it before. I had known that there was a, a Spike Lee movie from you know the early two thousands that you know was uh, like worth seeing with Ed Norton, but I didn't really know anything about it. You were vaguely aware that it Spike exists. Lee did have a career in the early 2000s. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> well, in the immediate... But no, no, no. I knew that there was an Ed Norton Spike Lee movie. Okay. That's, that's about it. In the immediate aftermath of September 11th, this movie came out, I guess, in 2002. Uh, it follows Montgomery Brogan, a 30-year-old drug dealer played by Ed Norton. It's also me and Morgan mixed. Yeah. Oh, Brogan. shit. Brogan. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Uh, who just got busted by the DEA and his friends, girlfriend, and father on Monty's final day of freedom before he goes to prison the next morning and starts a seven-year sentence. Who are these friends, you may ask? Well, we have Jacob Elinsky, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the goat, a high school English teacher who has a number of encounters with one of his students, Mary, played by uh, Anna Paquin, 
And then there's Frank Slaughtery, played by Barry Pepper, uh, who what a you, performance. who you might know as Roger Maris from the movie Sixty One. Oh, I'm a huge Barry Pepper fan. Yeah, he's also really good in Saving Private Ryan. Oh, you're okay. You're you're a big Pepperhead. Everything that. everything that that guy is in, he's fucking fantastic. It's like a very weird character actor that I'm like fully supportive. Like you know how everybody has like that that one like actor where they're like every time he's in, he just crushes it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Big pepper guy. <laughs> You're a huge pepper guy. Pepperhead. Yeah. All right. I love 61, and that's kind of why. You learn something but, new every day. Yeah. Wow. Well, Frank is an incredible character, honestly. I he mean, is. he's one of the most accurate depictions of like the sleazy Wall Street bro, I think. Oh, it's like perfect. I. Yeah. I love the touch. Like you can totally tell that he's like seeing these people for the the first time in a while. Like the way that they they mash or just failed to in in some scenes like i feel like really is done brilliantly well my favorite thing about his character is like how he keeps on accusing i don't know if you want to get into this much yet um but he keeps on accusing him of like uh being rich off of um you know other people's suffering right like he does that a lot and like they, and it's like they you work never for touch Street. on it yeah but they never <laughs> acknowledge that like the, the irony, they just kind of let it sit there for you to get it. Like, no one ever calls him on it, which mm-hmm. is also very, like, you know, that that checks because, like, you wouldn't say that. Exactly. But, like, you know, it's, like, there. Like, it's a very clear undertone it's a very, to like, his, like, side you know, eye. his character, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, so many of the scenes, like, especially between him and Hoffman, like, they feel like encounters between people that haven't seen each other in years and are coming from very different corners of life like in which they don't interact with people like each other very often you know like hoffman is like a high school english teacher and then barry pepper is this like wall street scumbag basically who doesn't really have like any problems really like he's kind of just like the tertiary guy who like he provides like a very important role but like if you dig, if you kind of like dig deeper in, into his character like there's not many stakes for him going on like no matter yeah. what he's going to go home to his nice apartment his nice job at the end of the day and maybe that's even intentional and it's kind of like you know these wall street douchebags or finance bros or whatever like i don't know maybe they predicted the occupy wall street movement with this (laughs) i might be i might be stretching with that there are a couple great scenes like between those two characters jacob and frank in which both of them just establish an inherent like power dynamic that feels supernatural just given like what we know about those characters and i also found it really interesting how spike would shoot them in a long static take like i think specifically if that shot of the uh window where we find out that frank lives right next to ground zero and he's talking about like how the air around that area might that still be perfect poison or whatever um and like there's Asbestos. also yeah as best there's also like the the very uh interesting line where he's like the times said it is poison or whatever and frank says fuck the times i read the post yeah and i, I find that's perfect said it's all right and then like of course he's in new york goes 
someone's lying. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. That really is a great scene. But like, I I found it so interesting. Like it comes right after the scene with Edward Norton and Brian Cox, where he's doing the uh, rapid fire back and forth editing. Like every time one of their lines changes, like he goes, he's talking cameras on him. Norton's talking cameras on him and he goes back, 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 back and forth. And then then the very next scene is just this long, like five minute take. Very yeah. uncomfortable framing, by the way, too, yes. in that apartment, which is really interesting because of where he lives. Like, there's no, it is not comfortable in his apartment right next to Ground Zero, which is kind of interesting. But, mm-hmm. and it's also like he's not the guy that, like, he's not a homebody. <laughs> like, it's like, it makes sense that he lives in a very uncomfortable place and is just all, like, on edge and, like, you know. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, um, what was I going to say? I had I had one more thing too, and I can't remember. What it was. Oh, just like the the ability to frame who these people are, just in their uh, the way they interact with the media within New York, also is really fun. Yeah, so like, that's a very nice touch. Yeah. Um, those are, are sort of the three main characters, but we've got three very trio. important uh, side characters as well that the movie balances pretty perfectly with going like back and forth between who you see and who you see with who. Yeah, and then. Like the relationships that like someone would have with one character impacting how they might see a different character in a different scene, even yes. if that different character, like person C, we'll call him, didn't know person B. Yeah, I love the characters in this movie. Like, they're yeah. very effective. Like they all have very specific like purposes, I guess. Like they 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 do a good job of each. It's very literary. Yeah, I feel like it could, it could work as a uh, stage play. But I was gonna ask you if this was like written for the stage, right? It feels it feels like, like it. it. Yeah. I don't know why, but it really does. It, it was not. <laughs> it's an adaptation of a novel. I was gonna get to that too, and it's oh, that's very interesting by David I know. Benioff. Yeah, we also focus on Monty's girlfriend, uh, Naturelle. Rivera, mm-hmm. easily the best name in the movie. Yes, uh, who he met when at his high school, when he went back to brag about his basketball accomplishments, and then he sees her, this eighteen-year-old, like waiting for her basketball practice, and and they uh, hit it off. And you also have Ed Norton and his father. Uh, Brian Cox, who's really kind of playing the anti-Logan Roy. Like, he's just the sweetest man ever. Apparently was in some financial trouble. Like, he owed money for his bar, which is the reason that Ed Norton got into dealing drugs. We never actually see him deal drugs. Not not into but yeah. why he continued? Yeah, because he he starts at the well. Rich no, that that is why he got got into it. But then he continued despite the fact that he, he didn't did like have to in like, high school. Well, I think he was like a like weed dealer, maybe yeah, or that's like what they're saying. Very like low stakes. Yeah, and then the fact that his father he gets needed caught. money, he started yeah. like dealing like higher like premium shit or whatever. Right, and then I, th- and then you know you get. From the, the scenes with with his friends, like he clearly took it too far, and he paid the price for it. Destroyed his life. Yeah. So the entire movie is that last night before he goes to jail, and that's like certainly part of the reason that I think it could work as a uh, stage play. Is like the timing of the script. It has to be over one night, so you're getting right. some more of those drawn out, longer conversations that you might see on the stage. Very bottled. Yeah. 
it's nice. It works. I agree. Yeah, completely. Uh, and then we also certainly have to mention uh, Anna Paquin as Mary, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's Just a student. thoroughly uncomfortable character. <laughs> thoroughly uncomfortable character. That's I, it's kind of why I compared it to her performance in Margaret, which is like, I feel like that movie could be her character just a, a few years down the road here, which, I mean, it that makes sense. This was shot in 2002. That was shot in 2006. Um, and then came out five years later, but Ugh. that's a whole thing. And performance in that movie is, like, I think one of the five or ten best I've ever seen. This one, like, she's a little bit more, like, chaotic, or, like, you get the sense that she's, like, cunning or manipulative, which she absolutely is, that character, in Margaret. But, like, in, in this one, it's just, there's more of, like, a sense of adolescence to it, and maybe, like, maliciousness, but... You can't really tell because she's she's like a seventeen year old girl, so you you don't want to like project like anything. I don't think it's malicious. I think it's just um, it's that type of you know like on the edge seventeen year old with like you know her whole. I think she's a prostitute too. I think that's what they were insinuating with the the the, really the belly tattoo. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I didn't, didn't catch get, that. I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's when uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman asked her how he the deal with the tattoo. And she goes, "What? How I got the money, or what? Or what?" Um, no, she was talking to her about like when her mom saw yes. the tattoo, and she's like, yeah. "Like, where did you get the money for that?" But then there's I, another. I don't think the implication was no. that she got the money from Blake because he, he says something about like, uh, you know, does he love you or do, like or something? Does he does he love someone? She was like, "No." It was like implied that I think she was paid by a man hmm maybe well like if that is tattoo. the case i totally like, missed it to get twice because i've seen this movie twice now yeah I, it's a very brief thing and i think that's kind of what they're implying which also is why she's portrayed the way she is is this very like loose and, and yeah she's kind of like you know out everywhere like mature but immature like you know like mm-hmm. like too beyond your years to be in the scene that you're in and all these things like, you know, like she gets to the bar and chugs the champagne. It's like all of it. Like, and he's like, sure. Yeah. You know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is her teacher, which is why this is all. And she's like very bright. She's a bright student. Um, and she shows like, up like out of, out of nowhere, yes. too. Like the whole thing, of like yeah. the the movie is they're they're taking Ed Norton out to this club, like for his last night. And he's going out Norton, Hoffman and uh, Barry Pepper. He's br- he brings natural. Uh, his girlfriend as well and then Anna Paquin just shows up completely independently of of all of them sees her teacher and then is able to just get in just you know by like association because they had to like run in too quickly before anybody could say anything so she just like ends up in there basically and then that sets the stage for all of these encounters to happen that uh, set the course for the rest of the movie the movie does a, a very good job of well of like going kind of back in, in time a little bit like to like over the past few years of um, Montgomery's life like showing how he got busted and like you know one of his former customers asking him for drugs and like we see uh, his interactions with the cops we get an all-time movie cop in this movie with yeah just incredible that guy like i i love him he's one of the most memorable parts of the movie immediately (laughs) 
<laughs> He's great. There are no missing parts, really, and and if there are, like, it's parts of, of his life that you're just able to infer. It's a very tight script. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing. You're right. There's nothing that you that leaves you wanting. You so get we, the whole picture. Yeah, we like we like we see a lot of important moments. Like, give off a lot about like who he is and who these like characters are and like what their you know morals and personality is like like it starts with montgomery saving a dog in the first 10 minutes and a very rough dog in yeah. a very rough way yes like, which is really good characterization by the way of like the guy who will save the animal was like ah oh, shit this guy's got some bite in it when it's a dog on the verge of death it's like yeah. that's like it's very interesting in the way that they portray that and a like, dog that like bites him on the neck he's just like right. ah whatever you know he did like, he he like he yeah. really goes out of the way to like save the dog's life and then yeah. he has the dog doyle. the rest of the movie doyle yeah it's, it's, a, it's very nice he's a good boy um love the dog of course uh it's very funny watching brian cox root for the yankees that felt hilarious to me like i don't think he knew oh, what that was wait so i realized something what in watching this movie that i never knew before um, at the end of every single Talking Yanks episode, which you know I'm a fan of the John Boy vehicle. I'm aware. Um, sure. they, they end with uh, the following. Let me see if I could pull one up really quick and try to get like good timing on it. Hold on. Um, they end it with this. Hold on. There it is. Go Yanks. Telegrams. Go Yankees. Oh. Uh, I never knew what that was for. Like, I mean, I just assumed they had like canned audio or whatever. It and then it turns movie. out it's from this movie. I like, didn't know that, that. That scene happened. And I was like, <gasps> I was like the fucking DiCaprio the, gif. <laughs> the like Leo meme. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, I didn't know that. I, I was very surprised. Very that was, cool. That was fun. That um, was fun for me. <laughs> like, yeah. Nice I mean. Little thing. Holy this, shit. Napoleon. <laughs> This is like a, I don't know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit too just about like the fact this movie I think has a lot of like historical significance even though it came out in this millennium. Um, like all of the like post 9-11 stuff and just like the bleak undertones like surrounding all of the characters but just also the city like in this movie. Yeah. Like you'll notice like New York is so much uh, more empty in this movie yeah. than in, in in like other new york movies like there are so many the so many they use the city yeah like there are so many fewer so many fewer people on the streets of new york and no one's doing good yeah like the the city that you see in this movie is not glamorous it's honestly very honest like i think as far as people who you know try to portray new york in a lot of movies go um but it's very not glamorized it's it's like rough and dirty and sad and like kind of you know like gray and there's a lot of times when the city is beautiful and wonderful and amazing and magical um but most of the time it's a hard place to live so it's like you know um it's it was kind of interesting to see uh like a more i don't know like a more honest take on like new york especially post 9-11 new york when it's like the whole city was a fucking mess for a (laughs) long time like it was you know i remember going down to ground zero when i was like really little and looking into that giant fucking pit and just like i don't know we don't have to do a whole thing on 9-11 but it's just like it you know it it felt 
like very significant. And like, you know, and I was little and I didn't know New York before that. And it right. still seemed like something was wrong. And it's like it like it kind of stayed that way for a long time. Putting uh, Frank right above ground zero, like watching over it, like in that apartment. And like, I will say part of me was kind of uh, like laughing when he says, I'm never moving. They could like blow down the next one. I'm never moving. I was like, that apartment is worth so much money again now. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> like again, it was a very good, uh, good framing device for the whole movie to kind of have this massive tragedy underpinning like the the vibe of the whole movie yeah like you get the sense of immediately that it's in like the wake of a horrible disaster yeah um and that just like interestingly enough like i watched this movie for the first time like like this is one of the first movies i watched directly after COVID happened like that's i watched really it in, in march march 2020 when like it wasn't you know of course also there were so many yeah. like fewer people in the streets and it was like that sense of doom and like disaster and kind of like emptiness malaise Weird and, like an empty. emptiness yeah. yeah and then you know like, with with now God, like like so, so many strange. people now over the last month like comparing the the time we're into like the year or so after September 11th, like it just felt like a good time to br- to bring this movie back to the pod and really go back and like look at this again and see what it has to offer because I think it really is like a very like fascinating movie. It is. I I was thoroughly captivated the whole time, and I will also say, I have never seen 2002 as a vibe captured so perfectly mm-hmm. <laughs> like the girls in the little like layered crop tops and the tiny pants and like the like just at the 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 combo of barry pepper's like slick backed haircut and and the suit and then philip seymour hoffman wearing the jacket like the tan jacket with the tie and the yankee hat and like just everything is like so oh and fuck, we haven't even talked about Ed Norton at all. Like Ed <laughs> I know, Norton's I know. goatee and leather jacket and little hair and everything that he's got going on in this movie is like it's like perfect. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's so, so good. <laughs> era specific. It's so good. Like if he got out of jail in 2009, assuming that he goes, let's, ooh, leaving a cliffhanger there for you. Um, but if he got out of jail in 2009, and tried to do the same stuff that he was doing before he went in, he would be lost. The world <laughs> was a different place. Absolutely. <laughs> that leads me into we need to talk about the uh, tool was over. We were all over that. <laughs> he comes back listening to fucking T Pain. He's like, "What the fuck? What is this?" Um. Yeah, we get, we got to talk about the bathroom mirror scene. Oh my god! Where he amazing. goes? Yeah, yeah, probably. I think the best scene in the movie, like Norton's delivery of this whole monologue, is like a little bit like awkward. But that's kind of why I love it. And it's like he's given this whole thing of like fuck everybody Everyone. in this city, everyone. Fuck the cab drivers. Fuck the like guys everybody. running the stands. Yeah. Fuck the fuck corrupt the cops. The fuck Benson the Italians. Hurst Italians who are acting like they're auditioning for the Sopranos. Yeah, like he's, he says so that. Good. Like probably the most like captivating the Russian mobsters two with their sugar seek. cubes in their teeth. It's like it's so specific uh, and so good. Yeah, like it's yeah. just a very very well written monologue like that kind of made me forgive David Benny off as soon as I heard it for the first time. That's the thing I wanted to also touch on. When I was watching like the intro credits, like, you know, I, I was kind of like, I was distracted momentarily because I like, had ah, the credits all like, you know, whatever. And then I looked back and I saw based on the novel by David Benioff and I was like, like oh, what? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh boy. I know. Man. Um, 
I actually read one of his his novels. That's, that's right. Uh, I read uh, City of Thieves, or I believe was the the title of the book, like set in World War Two, right? Russia, where these two kids have to find a bunch of eggs. It's, <laughs> it's a wild Dragon book. Eggs. I was I was totally into it. I I I read the whole thing in like a day. So like. David Benioff obviously is like a very talented writer. I don't no, know what the just, fuck happened with the last destroyed. season of Game of Thrones. I do. They well, destroyed we their can... reputations because they wanted to do a Star War. And because they wanted to make a show about what would happen if the South won the Civil War. Oh, that's right. Man, what a bunch of hacks. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, they weren't in their uh, not hack back era yet. Yes. And he wrote a very Well, to good be a script. hack, you need to work your way up to getting the opportunity to be a hack. So it's, you know, it's like... I suppose that's true. Yeah, to some degree. Let's move into the uh, club itself, because like, we spend about half an hour there in the course of the movie, and it's really it's where, where uh, everything changes. Something that I noticed just this like uh, second time around, like I remember the first time being like blown away by the like all blue or all all red shots that they yeah, had that was going really cool. on, and then like this time, like especially when they were like filming uh, Rosario Dawson like on the uh, dance floor and like this like the club scenes with like the like lights changing and shit, it looked just a little bit cheaper to me after I've. Like, cause I just watched Hype Williams' Belly a couple weeks ago, the from '98, uh, which just came out a few years before this one, where like the club scenes in in that movie, like you you genuinely have to see them, like they they are insane, and um, I don't know the the ones like in this movie, like they're they're still good, but it didn't hit quite as hard like when I had that to compare it against, and like maybe that that was unfair, but. Like, I don't know, just the fact that I watched Belly in the past, like, couple weeks, like, it made sure. me just... They really do drive home the idea that uh, Edward Norton is going to get raped in prison. Yeah, it's <laughs> not necessarily that, it's just, like, it's, like, beaten and, like, it's everything. It's everything you imagine goes badly when you're in prison. Yeah, but, like, like they, they talk about it so much, they like, do. to the point where you it becomes, like... You don't have to a pretty like, boy like you in prison. Like, and everybody it's just, given. like, independently arrives at, at that conclusion, like, oh, do you see this guy? Like, He's, you guy can't go in there looking like that. No. Like, I, I find Which that very funny. Which becomes a very interesting know. plot point at the end, by the way, but... Yeah, yeah um, it it seems like a way of, of making, like, the uh, seven-year sentence just seem totally unviable. Like if if he took the years and was just like bored and sad in prison and maybe got out in four with good behavior or whatever, like I think that the stakes would seem less drastic and then not fully yeah, justify the the final hammering decision. home. This is not going to be in good time. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, you know, like you you meet Goliath, like yeah. Russian drug guy, and he's the like find boss. the guy with with no friends. no friends and like beat the shit out of him yeah. and it's like jesus okay yeah. um so yeah they they really like drive that home i think maybe a little bit too much like it goes a little too far there but oh actually speaking of that scene by the way nicola that uh was the crux of a minor plot point where um they were trying to make you decide uh if rosario dawson was the one who would betrayed ed norton um because somehow the cops knew his stash was hidden in the couch um and there were, you know, two people who knew that, but like we don't know that until that moment. Um, but like the person, it's like it's it's surprising, and like I to the point that I fully believed it wasn't, um, 
or believed it was Rosario Dawson. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's just a good little, um, like they a, lead it's you got down. a good, it's got a yeah. good, good beat to it. They, they certainly lead you down that, that path. And then that, that scene in the club definitely, you know, provides uh, closure as to what happened with him. And but yeah, they, they, gave, they leave they it so, like open enough that you could come to your conclusion that she did or did not. And it would still work like mm-hmm. from a, you know, from a shock factor standpoint, even of like, you know, it's like she didn't, <gasps> she did <gasps> like, you know, it'll work either way. Like, yeah. Where you're, you'll be disappointed or, or happy. And like, you know, it, it works out. Um, while all this is going on, there's an incredible shot that Spike Lee does of Mary going up the stairs to the bathroom oh, away yeah. from Jacob. Um, and this is where he makes the probably fatal decision. Uh, and then the, the camera goes back down away from her, back down the stairs to him, and then follows him as he goes back up yep. the stairs. And then they go into the bathroom, and you have that entirely red lighting, like yep. very like Dario Argento or whatever. And that is where they kiss. And then you get the the classic Spike Lee uh, dolly shot. You get one in in every movie. And in this case, I find it very funny that he used it on Hoffman looking like an absolute dipshit coming out of that bathroom after kissing his fucking student. Like, so when the camera is panning back on that dolly and he's just like looking like, oh, God, what did I do? The juxtaposition (laughs) of that scene mixed with Frank and um, and Naturell in the other room having a screaming match because nobody stopped Ed Norton from destroying his life. Meanwhile, Frank was actively pushing Jake to make out with his student. <laughs> like, you know, it's like it works so well. It's like you guys are fucking dipshits. It's like this is all terrible. Like, I mean, literally, he's like, I never, I, I saw him destroying his life minute by minute, moment by moment. I never did anything to stop it. And then, like, 20 minutes earlier, he's like, hey, your student's hot. <laughs> <laughs> you going to yeah. do something about that? Just <laughs> like, a total, total <laughs> like, hypocrite. Uh, you don't want to maybe... And then he acts on it. And it's like, you idiots, you just destroyed his... <laughs> His yeah. life now too. Like it was not actually you, he did it, but like you know you didn't help. Like, yeah, um, it, it was yeah. actually in that scene where the Natural and Frank fight, and then she leaves, and uh, Jacob yes comes right. back over. That was where I kind of had the thought of like this could almost work as a play. Right, and then he announces like I kissed my student, and he makes the, says the line, "Who are you trying to be, R. Kelly?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. I thought that was pretty great. It is. Um, so yeah, there you know. Then they they leave the club. They never even. Which resolve. by the way, this was two thousand two. That's yeah. a very progressive joke. For I know. That's interesting. I, I didn't know like what they knew in two thousand two, but I guess Apparently they that. they knew that. Yep. Um, then the next morning. Not, by the way, the only thing that has like aged poorly, quote unquote, from in the last twenty one years since this movie came out, is the the style. Like the dress. Uh, I was going to say just how... That's the only thing. Everything else is still like prescient. Yeah. (laughs) Everything else in this feels like incredibly modern. Like maybe that doesn't bode well for... No, it doesn't. Modern day New York. (laughs) But, you know... um, Not a good sign. Yeah. And then after that, the next morning, sun comes up. He has to go to jail in a few hours, which leads to a couple interesting scenes where he has the like falling out with natural and they fight. And then he goes down 
with his friends and they're all and they're the three of them are walking along that pier which he used to sell on and not not prescient pertinent yeah wrong word (laughs) sure dumbass um no 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 no. prescient kind of works too a little bit i think it's something i wasn't gonna challenge you on it yeah but and i challenge myself i don't know i i liked the feel of that scene a lot where it's just like the three of them walking and it feels like a little bit uh aimless and then they get down right. to the bridge and he asks looking Pepper at rikers by the way beat the shit out of him yeah that's rikers. right he's right, looking right, at rikers yeah. yeah looking at rikers yeah and then he goes down and he says you gotta make me ugly i can't go in there oh. looking like this and by the way rikers and the hell's gate bridge which i think like the duo of those things i don't know if that's on purpose but like having if you know the name of that bridge which is the hell's gate bridge and then you combine that with you know the fact that they're looking over at Rikers, and then what he takes from that is how nice would it be to drive that little tugboat around all day? <laughs> and it's like that's so beautiful because like he's staring at like the gate to hell and prison, and he's like, literally, how nice! Yeah, you just live a little life on a tugboat. That sounds so sweet. And it's like that's like he just notes like, a little detail. You know, that's beautiful. Yeah, that that's really see the bright characterization. Side. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um. And then, of course, you know, it. the last 15 minutes, um, Brian Cox, you know, he, he tells his dad, don't, don't drive me to jail. It'd be easier for me to just go myself. Right. But Brian Cox insists, I'm going to take you. And then... God, the, what a monologue. Right? Oh, oh, my God. Every fucking moment from here on out, once they get in the car, is amazing. Just <laughs> like, drives the whole thing home. Perfect. Um, and on the drive to prison, he passes by the people he scorned in that, that earlier scene. Where he was saying, I'm sorry, that wasn't everybody. Rikers, actually. It was Randall's Island that he oh. could see, but Rikers is a little bit further beyond Okay, that. It's implied that it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, sure. it's in the East River. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the people he scorned in that earlier scene, he passes by like the cab drivers and market salesmen, and they're all like looking at his like beaten up face um he sees a little kid in a school bus who like waves to him and they write each other's names in the fog on the that was really the window cute too. it's another um, example of like because the also his whole characterization was like he never really um like he ed norton is like he's obviously like he's like a a drug dealer or whatever but like his uh his character he says like earlier he has a gun that he's never shot at anybody like he's not like he feels dangerous when he has his big bodyguard behind him like he's like he's not like this big drug kingpin criminal crime lord or whatever like this is all um like he did it to support his dad and like all these things that like you know obviously bad decision making but like he's innocent enough in all this that like he's a very sympathetic character so like having him like go through this like little moment on the way out of trying to reconnect and like have this you know just last like second with uh you know his his freedom <laughs> like it is really nice very yeah. sad yeah. And then, of course, Brian Cox delivers that phenomenal monologue, offering him the choice to skip out on prison and just drive away and go and look away and never come back and start a new life and work as a bartender and like grow a handlebar mustache and, and beard. start a new family. And it's like it's it's crazy. And um and like you you see it all playing out too, and like you see like div- each different steps of his life like should he choose this scenario for himself 
like the this is what the rest of his life could be and like you know brian cox is like you know he says dad they'll they'll take your bar and he says fuck the bar you think that's more important than my son and it's like he's just the best like movie dad like it's so funny that it's the same actor who played logan roy like i i find that hilarious he's so good in this i like he really is it's that's a really great performance. And then it does kind of leave you on that like ambiguous note of does he actually follow through no, it didn't. with this? Doesn't it? No. You didn't see that? Because at the very end, he has the no, like... No, 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 no. He says, if I turn left... Ooh, that's interesting. You might have missed this because this is a very specific thing that I'm, I might only know because I grew up in Westchester. So <laughs> he, he says, right now, I'll turn left... We'll go over the bridge and we'll just keep driving west and we'll just go because mm-hmm. um, they take the it's the west side highway out like north because they're going up towards um, it's called I think he said Otisville, which is way up on the Taconic. Um, and so they're like it's it's out. It's west of like Harriman State Park. It's like over by Rockland. I think it's like further. It's like way out up and then over the, the river. Um, and like the so direction in which he drove, north, you well, revealed like that. He, if you go west and you take the GW, you go west through Jersey, and he's like, just go west, just keep going, go to the desert, just keep going west. And then at the end, the last scene when they cut back to him in the car, they show them going north of the GW and still going oh, okay. north. So he, that's like he doesn't, he didn't do it. They went north, right? Like, instead of going west, he went north, and they they took him. Like okay. That's, that's yeah, and to be yeah. clear, I, I did also take away that he, like, probably follows through on this plan, like, that we're seeing, like, as it plays out, and that he doesn't actually go to jail. I did think, you know, with that last shot, like, of his just, like, beaten up face, like, in the, the window, it's kind of like, like, it, it maybe leaves it open to, you could read it as ambiguous, but... You know, I, I think it's kind of like a 75-25. It, it really table. is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it it also ends with that nice, like, tribute to uh, New York, like where he says, like, you're, you're, uh, New, Yorker, you're a New Yorker. You can leave, but it's always going to be change. part of you, yeah. And then it gives that shot of, like, you can't bring can't down New, New York, York or something, which, which is, like, post right now, after 9-11, like, that's really cool. And like You mess with New York, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. <laughs> Of Green Goblin, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. of course, like every nine eleven New York movie had that 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 bit. Yeah, <laughs> like, you fuck with one of us, you fuck with all of us. And then Spike like ended up actually making that like nine eleven series or whatever he put together, where he like tied it into COVID. Or I, I don't think that was was very good. But um, I never saw that. Yeah, I didn't either. I yeah. don't think it it was very important. You know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and then. So yeah, just like Spike, he's one of the best New Yorkers. Just that's who he is. It's um, true. I mean, at the sideline of ev- every, every Knicks game, game, should be down the by the. Uh, he see, he sits like in the the manager's co seat, <laughs> co pilot seat in Yankee Stadium. Like, mm-hmm. He's Spike. He's around. He's, he's like part one of the New most York. Visual. He is currently the most visual or visible. Like New York celebrity to the point that he's like our guy. Yeah, you gotta love Spike Lee. If you live here, you fucking love Spike Lee. Oh, that's true. Yep. It's just like you just love him because he loves it here, and we love Spike. <laughs> Everyone loves Spike. A lot of people say that this is the best 9/11 movie, and uh, having been three years old for that, I'm gonna take their word for it. Oh. oh double down on that with you with everything going on in the world and so many comparisons being made to the time directly after the twin towers fell this felt like a good time to revisit this 
totally blown away by how current it feels. Uh, it's very refreshing to see a protagonist show outright contempt for people and just be a flawed, like, kind of shitty That's person. That's a good point. There's, yeah. like, a lot of Paul Schrader in this. Like, I, he also, hates everyone. Yeah, and, like, Travis Bickle. Like, I, I see a lot of that in this movie, like, especially being New York. Like, just this kind of, like, unhinged, like, violent guy. Like, and I, I don't know, not, not to draw, like, too much of a comparison there because I do think norton in in this movie like has much more of like a soul and a conscious than you know de niro in that movie or a number of other like schrader protagonists but specifically in that like bathroom mirror scene where he's saying fuck everybody like that is one of the main things that i i thought of personally you know like all of these characters are pretty shitty like all of them either have sex with a teenager or like joke about it repeatedly and like push him on and like Even lead him like into it rosario dawson who's like the closest thing to you know the good character out of the main quartet i'll say um like she's like willingly taking all of this drug money and like living you know under the roof that was bought by it and like taking all of this jewelry and excess and like all these things and like never says a word about it you know it's like the movie like always hammers that home yeah. too it's like it doesn't let anybody get off scot-free really yes. it's like if you're yeah. saying like well why are we feeling sorry for this guy if he's like you know he like ruined people's lives like the movie does make that point like right. it always like every viewpoint you could have of these characters i think is represented um and the fact that they never wrap up the arc with uh jacob and Mary, they just kind oh, of like, you can you can assume you just kind of know what's going to happen. He like, tells you what's going to happen. He says she's going to go talk, and everyone's going to find out. And then he does it anyway. And then you can just assume she's going to go talk, and everyone's going to find out, and he's going to lose his job, and that's it. Yeah, like you can really assume either he's just fucked, and it plays out exactly how you said, or she like blackmails him and he gives her an a plus or whatever but that's like true too you know i yeah. i like it doesn't really matter like in the doesn't. grand scheme of things no. like that's what you get that's kind of just one of like the main things from from this movie yeah. and also margaret just to draw another comparison to that movie like i don't know i i feel just the sense of community but also just of a city that's so large you could never begin to comprehend it and like navigating that world and following these characters as they try to navigate it, I think leads to this just being a very rewarding cinematic experience. Yeah. I think that's very fair. Good movie. Worth watching. Definitely. Great performances. Um, very good writing, surprisingly from the pen of David Benioff. <laughs> if any of these guys like Norton, Hoffman, Pepper and Lee Benioff, if any of them aren't operating at a hundred percent that this movie probably doesn't work. Yeah. Like, uh, the, and also, like, the the last thing that I wanted to say about not wrapping up that arc with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Anna Paquin is that I love that that whole arc leads up to that, like, almost nonverbal poetic sequence and right. not the other way around. That, yeah. like, the camera work and cinematography in that two minutes as she goes up the stairs and, and he follows her into the bathroom that isn't in service of some huge like blow up at the end or like right. an act of right. moral reckoning. Like it's actually the other way around and like you have to draw your own conclusions on what's happening based on the way that the scene is being directed and shot and acted. And like, I don't know. That's, that's what it's all about. Wait, what was the favor that he asked 
uh, Frank for? Um, do you remember when they're they're at the bar? He like whispered into his ear. I know, but what what do you think it was? Because I have an idea, and I'm curious what you might think it is. I actually don't have a theory about that, and if there is, if I there was a concrete answer. I think I missed it. I think he goes to him and asks him to like try to berate her into admitting that it was her who gave him up or something, because it's like when she he thinks that he's going to like, I think. What do they? Th- oh, they think he's going to a prostitute or something like with the, the Russian guy, and that's like because later he asks him to like beat the shit out of him, right? And I feel like that's like what he uses Frank for. Is yeah, like this very immoral, fucking like brutal side of him that he tries to get out of him, but he okay. doesn't want to show it. But because they don't I like that, they don't say what it is. But then right after that is when he goes and talks to Rosario Dawson. I think you're you're probably right then. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what it was, well but done. yeah, that's at least my thought. But then I also there's one thing about the bar scene in general or the bar night that really bothered me, and I was curious if you saw it too. Uh, it's no, a production. It's a production note. You got to tell me. I would have missed it. So when Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ed Norton are having their conversation. Um, I forget what they're talking about at that moment, but it, it's probably the, the student or whatever. Philip Seymour Hoffman's like leaning over. And he's like, yeah, I don't really think that we should like do that or whatever. And Ed Norton's like talking in normal volume. <laughs> he's like saying, well, I, I don't know. You could just like maybe it's fine. Like do whatever you want to do. And he's like, I, yeah, but don't you think that's a bad idea? You know, like talking like it's the like, like it's loud. Uh, like, well, huh. Philip Seymour, because it's si- when you shoot in a bar and there's right. music, quote unquote, playing, it's silent. So they, they add it in afterwards. So the actors have to act like they're yelling over music in a bar. And Ed Norton just does not at all. <laughs> and Philip Seymour Hoffman's trying his best to make that work. Because it's like they're just doing two different things. It's really funny. I didn't notice that. Like there was one moment where like I think like you see Norton kind of realize that he's not. He like leans in and he's like, and yeah. the And then like Philip Seymour Hoffman's still like yelling, like trying to do the fake bar yell. <laughs> But it was kind of interesting. But that was the only thing. <laughs> only I note. I think that's about all I have on, on yeah. this movie. Have you I got anything else? Um, no, I think that's kind of it. Very yeah. good movie. I really liked it. it, that, it it's, it's fun to dissect. It was very well written. Really good performances and good characters. It's 25th well hour. It bangs. Yeah. If you know it, you love it. And if you don't know it, go, go watch it. it. It's good really, stuff. really great stuff. Yeah. This has been Mudville. Uh, we've had a very nice time w- with you guys this week. If you've liked this episode, you liked our commentary on the film or on what's been going on around the league this past week, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you're Patreon listening. Stuff. And please do the Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash mudville. You can either sign up for free and just use us as a mailing list, or you could kick us a few bucks. Really, really helpful anytime anybody does it. Uh, I have it linked right to my phone, so I would get a notification, and anytime I see pledged $1, it gives me a huge rush of serotonin. So (laughs) if you want to provide me with that, or you just want to throw us a few dollars, again, it's uh, patreon.com slash mudville. Good stuff. Also, um, if you listen to this episode and you're a big New York head, um, if you like New York sports, there's going to be a new episode of SBNY coming out either tomorrow or Thursday. Keep an eye on that. Love it. Also, go give us a listen to on the uh, the other show, me and my brother Morgan, weekly New York sports talk show, i.e. the Mike and the Mad Dog type vehicle. Um, 
And uh, yeah. I love the word vehicle. Big on the word vehicle. And you know why I'm big on the word vehicle, actually, speaking of which? I'm uh, not even sure you're entirely using it correctly, but no, I hope that Michael, we continue. Michael K. Show. Anything that's like a like a, a show or like an act, like if you wanted to call, um, uh, what's the the Giamatti vehicle that just came out? Oh, the holdovers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, like I that's that, my point. That's like a decent case of it. Where like I don't know. I I would always use that as like a movie specifically designed to like showcase an actor, like one person specifically, like, like you make this <laughs> movie like directly about like Frank Sinatra. Like this movie's a Frank Sinatra vehicle. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. And I wasn't going to like, I think it's more funny if you use it more generally. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. I was going to say like, I, I wasn't sure that, that you like were this even game like, tonight is the Darius Garland vehicle. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say like, I didn't even think you were totally using it right, but I was still going to support your, you're doing so because i thought it was it was cool fair enough but yeah that's been it it's been mudville yeah i've been nolan rabine i've been brody stab check out the brody and morgan vehicle tomorrow (laughs) i'm gonna hit you with my vehicle (laughs) fair enough all right thanks for listening catch you guys later